0: Best laid plans need an escape plan. Whatever your adventure,
1: the all-new Towson is always in. Folks, up. Hey, 42 here. In November 1922, Howard Carter came upon the final resting place of a little-known Egyptian pharaoh known as Tutankhamun. When Carter carefully removed the outer door and stepped over the threshold, he became the first human being to do so in well over 3,000 years. Though Carter didn't know it at the time, Tutankhamun's tomb was to become one of the greatest archaeological finds in the history of mankind. Right up there with the Terracotta Army, the remains of Pompeii, and the Rosetta Stone. News of the incredible discovery hit the headlines, as the attention of the world's media trained itself squarely on the valley of the kings in Egypt, near to what was once Thebes. It was the crowning achievement of Carter's career, something that would see him immortalized amongst archaeologists. But, from the moment he first stepped inside the pharaoh's tomb, rumours began to spread that his actions had unleashed a terrible curse. Punishment from beyond the grave. Would be dished out to all of those who had dared to disturb the long dead pharaoh. Plenty of people thought it was nonsense, including Carter himself. But then, quite suddenly, people started dying. A few months before this remarkable moment in the history of archaeology, Howard Carter found himself standing in Downton Abbey. Well, sort of. The Grand Manor House was actually called High Clear Castle and it was home to the 5th Earl of Carnarvon rather than the 7th Earl of Gruntham but 88 years later it would be selected to serve as the home of the fictional Crawley family in everyone's favourite period drama which is actually pretty apt because as it happened, Carter found himself at the centre of his own little drama that day in 1922 you see, the 5th Earl of Carnarvon was his benefactor the man who'd been financing Carter's archaeological expeditions in the Valley of the Kings for the previous seven years, during which time Carter had turned up, next to nothing of archaeological interest. Admittedly, the outbreak of the First World War had somewhat hampered his efforts, but that didn't change the fact that Carnarvon had invested a lot of time and money into the venture, in return for Diddly Squat. Well, I say, diddly-squat, Carter's years in Egypt had yielded a few odds and ends, scraps of linen and shards of pottery mostly. It wasn't much, but many of these items shared something strange in common. They were inscribed with a single word, the name of an Egyptian pharaoh whose remains had never been located, Tutucar. You don't need the powers of a pharaoh to preserve your hair and keep it healthy. All you need is keeps, who've kindly sponsored this video. I've had people close to me start to lose their hair as early as their 20s, and it's always been an obsessing experience. If you're in the same boat, then you're not alone. Did you know two out of three guys will experience some form of male pattern baldness by the time they're 35? But the best thing you can do to prevent hair loss is take the initiative now. And do something about it whilst you've still got hair left. I really like Keeps because it makes treatment super easy by delivering your hair loss medication every three months. So you can say goodbye to awkward doctor visits and wasting in pharmacy checkout lines. There's a reason that Keeps has more five-star reviews than any of its competitors. And hundreds of thousands of men trust them for their hair loss prevention medication. If you're like me, you're probably not ready to lose hair just yet. But prevention is key. The faster you act, the faster you see results. And the sooner you start using Keeps, the more hair you'll save. So, if you're noticing that you're losing your hair, do something about it. For a limited time, go to Keeps.com forward slash 422 or click the link in the description to receive 50% off your first order. As far as Carter was concerned, it was proof he was close. But Lord Carnarvon had asked Carter to join him at Highclere Castle to tell him it was over, that he would no longer be financing digs in the Valley of the Kings. Carter was almost frantic, practically begging Carnarvon to give him more time, and that show of passion paid off, because Carter came away with a deal. One more year. If he didn't uncover anything of note in that time, his funding would be cut, and all his hard work over the years would have been for nothing. As it turned out, Carter wouldn't need anywhere close to a year. He resumed his search for the tomb of Tutankhamun on November the 1st, 1922, and, three days later, he found it. The team was going over old ground near the previously discovered tomb of Ramesses VI, when one of Carter's men stumbled over a large piece of rock. Being a former archaeological dig site, there was plenty of rubble lying around, but unlike the rest of the loose rocks, this particular chunk was partially buried beneath sand and mud. It turned out to be the top of a very long staircase that disappeared beneath the ground, until it ended abruptly, right at the door of Tutankhamun's tomb. Carter called for Lord Carnarvon at once, and when the Earl arrived, the two men got a front-row seat at the opening of what was basically the world's most exciting unit on Storage Wars. But unlike Storage Wars, Tutankhamun's tomb wasn't full of soiled mattresses and 80s pornography. No, it was packed almost to bursting with around 5,000 priceless artifacts, including a dismantled chariot, finely carved figurines, priceless jewelry, ancient weapons, and one standard issue Egyptian mummy, ensconced in no fewer than three nested sarcophagi, the last of which was made of solid gold somewhat ironically, considering the almost immediate rockstar status Tutankhamun enjoyed around the world after the back of this rediscovery of his mummified body, he wasn't actually all that important in his own time, at least as far as pharaohs go. And whilst he would become famous for unleashing a curse on the men who found him, it seems the boy king, who was only 19 when he died, may have suffered from a curse all of his own a cripplingly small jeep bull. If you've watched my video on the dangers of inbreeding, you'll know making babies with close family members is a bad idea. And not just because of the funny looks you'll get at the hospital. Unfortunately for King Toot, his parents, apparently, hadn't watched my video on inbreeding because they were siblings. If only they'd subscribed to the channel. Anyway, as a result of this rather unfortunate brother-on-sister action, Tutankhamun was born with a wide range of both physical and mental disabilities. Perhaps that's why he was pissed off enough to unleash a deadly curse when his not-so-eternal slumber was shattered 3,500 years later. Randomly enough, the first life snuffed out by the curse of Tutankhamun, taken on the very day the tomb was discovered, was that of Howard Carter's canary. It was stationed in a road cage hanging outside his door, and its untimely demise served as an appropriate warning of the danger that was about to come. It was a messenger boy who stumbled across the grizzly sea. Coiled in on itself, inside Carter's birdcage, was a huge cobra, the cage's previous occupant hanging from its mouth. Efforts were made to save the poor bird, but by the time the alarm was raised, the canary had already passed on to a better place. Well, the cobra's small intestine. It was a creepy event, made even creepier by the all-too-obvious connection to the recently opened tomb. You see, that very same day, the team had found two statues guarding the entrance to a still-sealed chamber within the tomb, thought to hold the Pharaoh's sarcophagus. The statues were large and imposing, depicting Tutankhamun himself, and each wore a golden crown adorned with a ureus. That's the ancient Egyptian symbol of divine authority. And, it just so happens to be in the shape of a cobra. As far as omens went, it was a bad one. But Carter and his men were made of stir stuff. After all, you don't get a grave digging gig in Egypt by being superstitious. The group were a little shaken, but whilst a few whispered about a possible curse, most were certain it was just an unfortunate coincidence. And uh, a coincidence that may well have been. But that didn't save Lord Carnarvon. I think it's it started with nothing more than a mosquito okay. bite on the Earl's Church a few months after the uh, discovery of the tomb. It was a small wound, hey, as we specific. all experienced on it. a warm summer's evening. Itchy bring and annoying. On. But no big deal. Lord mm-hmm. Carnarvon probably thought the same. He's still got these margin of blood. He knits that very same story while shaving. He opened up the wound just enough to let <laughs> the blood start seeping out.
0: How come it's still so
1: fresh? He was dead from blood poisoning blood within two weeks. A little more than four months after becoming one of the you very first treat days days mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, well, yeah you, you might have, have, have a drink. drink. You might drink a You have to drink have a That no, I don't believe in that. That's for the pee. That's it. That's for the pee and the shit. That's it. I'm talking about my skin. I'm your doctor, I'm gonna cut It's like, I'm not in the wound no more, I already have bacteria in my skin the, I do surgery, it's you not know, shit you. like if I don't drink water at all, like it's some pissy steel crackhead that smells pink like how your pissy shit for this smell, don't fucking blow me It's oh. not that bad, it's my skin, that's I'm trying to get rid no. <laughs> no. Don't fucking pull me what happened 1923? I don't know who that is. Gold succumbed to the effects of a fever. Okay, so. He'd contracted whilst in basically he'd begun to show symptoms of illness. Maybe long that's back back with the that he two, fucking with my head Something's fucking with my head Because I already know what to do. So death death I don't know understanding. It seems to all keep Carter's secretary died a year after that, smothered in his sleep mm-hmm. in a posh club in Mayfair yeah, by an assailant who yeah, was never caught. I think it's because I never had to. Carter like, and the excavation continued to drop like When flies. the stomach was big, people began to speculate as to just what was behind So maybe the because
0: I didn't rub anything on, on it, or because I did rub something on
1: it? Mm-hmm. The wall oh, fuck, I, I, I know what I did. I know what I did. Death shall call swift wind to him who disturbs the peace of the king. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, author of the Sherlock Holmes oh, Mysteries, I don't know. had his I don't own know what theory, suggesting invisible elemental guards left to so the of <laughs> I probably still need to do like just rub something else sometimes See I just need to history history? rub it every day We're being targeted No cream something. And tie it with hot so water It's stinging,
2: boiling hot
1: water what it's supposed to be No it doesn't the It does? What terrible fate did the curse have in store is, for well, him? My. Hodgkinson's <laughs> she, she, like at about the age of 65. No, I'm not. It's not gonna work. I, I swear to you, it's not to Okay, yeah, that does kind mm-hmm. of I, I've, I've got a lot of eyes who want to see this pottery play safe. <laughs> now I come to think about it, he wasn't the only one to escape the mummy's wrath by living to a ripe old age and dying of natural causes.
0: Even the best-laid plans need an escape plan. Whatever your adventure, the all-new Taos is always games.
1: In fact, of the 58 people known to have been present when the tomb was first opened, only eight died within the following 12 years and one study oh by a well-known scourge of the paranormal james randy found that those supposedly struck by the full force of the curse survived on average okay. for 23 years after what? the tomb was discovered oh, okay so maybe that's because there was only mm-hmm. so much of the curse to go around a bit like a supernatural version of a poisoned mouse trap Deadly, but it could only take so many victims before it ran out. That could be it's it. It was because but I loved it. That's know, why. That whole cursed tomb because I couldn't see my, my belly button, and, to, to, to and then I started rub it. my belly button, just then it started to show, but then it started to this this disappear. So by the rubbing the is actually curing it. Sweat and it's green, so that it doesn't. If you're fond of reading books about the sea, sure you might have read the one about a sperm whale called Moby Dick, who's known to eat semen. And no giggling to yourself, just because I said sperm and dick and semen in the same sentence, we're almost here. I just can't handle infantile humor. I think it's a Melville's legendary novel about the great white 1951, probably which doesn't seem like a long time ago. But in maritime terms, it was another era altogether. <laughs> yeah. An age when the sea was full of monsters. Unlike today, when the worst you might expect on a ship is bad sunburn and the shortage of rum, the sailors of yesteryear had proper things to worry about. On the 6th of August 1848, around the time Melville was writing about giant spunk whales, Captain Macquarie of the HMS Daedalus, along with several of his officers and crew, spotted a massive serpent in the ocean beside their ship as they sailed from the Cape of Good Hope to St. Helena. Reports from the captain and seven of his colleagues estimated the serpent was around 20 metres long with at least a metre of its giant snake-like head travelling above the water. Less than a year later, a similar report was published in the Illustrated London News with details of a serpent that matched the same description being sighted off the coast of Portugal. If, if, you're, if, you're a, if you're a doctor, you're not a good one at all. Because you're just as bad as the doctors who are doing the wrong checking and giving me
2: misinformation.
1: Drink water. Drink water. i to It's best we leave and mm-hmm. I've like had way right yes. too many late nights. I've taken the decision to try to be healthier and take care of myself. So my body takes care of me in the mm-hmm. future. So I'm using I'm to add structure to my do I understand. that. I'm testing. not saying that I'm Demain having pregnancy symptoms. To all what all? the I think my doctor's up that to that something. She did something to eat, I swear. And most importantly, start <laughs> to eat <laughs> our skin, yeah. I tell you I'm drinking yeah. significant yeah. No, I think he's preparing me for for my
0: little status. Fabulous
1: makes it easy for anyone to develop and stick to healthy habits, thanks to science-backed daily routines. As a result, you'll feel healthier, fulfilled, and more productive. I know I do. Fabulous is different from other self-improvement apps. Firstly, it allows you to go at your own pace. Unlike other self-development apps, Fabulous is gentler, more rewarding. More fun and has a more supportive approach, meaning you don't have to beat yourself up if you don't hit one of your daily tasks. It's also 100% personalized, tailored to your <laughs> needs. <laughs> Fireless provides schedules, me. tasks, and reminders specific to you. It's like having a personal life coach in your pocket. Isn't this a I know, you know? that has been a positive impact on my routine and general well being, right. and it could do the very same for you. You can find out more about the Fabulous app by clicking the it's link right in the description here. below. You'll also receive a free week's trade and up to twenty-five percent <laughs> off a fabulous subscription. So cool. join me and kickstart your journey. It look very bad too. Cool. To you and I, these stories may seem ridiculous. But at that point in history, the natural sciences were still young. Charles Darwin wouldn't publish on the origin of species I'm for about nice like ten years or so. And most people have mental rational brain understanding of everybody. nature and biology. It was normal for even the more educated seagoing men, like the captain and officers, to believe in sea monsters. In fact, sailors from all cultures were raised on a diet of superstition and tales of terrifying beasts of the ocean. Then again, sea monster was basically just a catch-all phrase which you could roughly take to mean big moving thing in the water we don't recognise. The sea serpent spotted by Captain McQuarrhy and the Men of the Daedalus, for example, is likely to have been a sideway up. There's nothing monstrous or mystical about these beasts, but they're known to be skim-feeding specialists, meaning often all you see of them is the upper jaw poking out above the water. And hey, you have to admit, it does look thought to have been responsible for a lot of sea serpent stories, is a giant oarfish, also rather quaintly known as the king of herrings. These freaky creatures can grow to be 11 meters long, making them the longest bony fish on the planet. And their brightly coloured crests give them a distinctly sea serpent-y vibe. Again, today we know they're just regular old fish, but back before they were known to science, it's no surprise people thought they were sea monsters it's also worth remembering, we haven't exactly completed the Marine Pokédex even today. Several thousand new animals are discovered every single year. And the 250,000 or so species we've put a name to so far is thought to be only around 10% of the true number. And it isn't just the small stuff we're yet to collect. We discovered a new species of baleen whale, not so different from the one that played a prank on the crew of the Daedalus, just this year in the Gulf of Mexico. Nowadays, we have a new word to describe monsters of the deep, Leviathan. But the term originates in the Old Hebrew Bible, where it describes a fire-breathing sea serpent that could boil water with its breath. In ancient Greek mythology, the doomed princess Andromeda was chained to a rock by her parents as a sacrifice to a horrible sea creature called Cetus. This piece of work was so nasty, no one could really agree on what it looked like. It was generally thought to be a serpentine monster, though in some versions it had the head of a greyhound and the body of a dolphin, which would be weird enough to scare the crap out of anyone. Luckily for Andromeda, just before Cetus arrived to devour her, the hero Perseus pitched up, fell in love with her, and set her free before killing the sea freak. Perseus assumed that stunt would gain him enough brownie points to be able to marry the woman he'd saved. Apparently her parents had only promised Andromeda to her uncle. Geez, you need sea serpents when you've got parents like that. Of course, Perseus did what any lustruck struck lad would do, and slaughtered Andromeda's uncle before marrying the beauty. Also tormenting the Greeks was Scylla, the man-eating monster from Homer's Odyssey. At first glance, she was a total catch, a beautiful woman from the waist up, but things were less pleasant below the belt. And no, I don't mean camel toe. She had twelve tentacle-like legs and a cat's tail, with six dog's heads arranged around her waist. She also had six long snaky necks, each sporting a human head full of sharks' teeth, which she used to snatch sails from their ships as they passed the rocks she lived on. Other ocean monsters from world folklore include the Umabozo in Japan, a black phantom that rises from the calm waters to pull sailors overboard and drown them, and the Eon and Crowan from Scotland, that's so big it could eat seven whales in one sitting without getting so much as a stomachache. Even the European myth of the mermaid is darker than you may think. It wasn't always a story of little Disney princesses or Daryl Hannah from Splash. The original mermaids would hypnotise passing seafarers with their enchanting singing and mesmerising looks, pouring them into the water before eating their flesh. And no, not in a nice way. But, amongst the many nightmarish tales of what awaits you at sea, one beast in particular seems to crop up across cultures, countries, and traditions more than any other. A massive octopus-like creature with long tentacles, capable of crushing entire ships before dragging them down to the watery depths. The Ainu people of Northern Japan revere a giant creature called the Akara that apparently lives in Akora Bay, on the island of Okaida, reaching up to 33 meters in length. The Ikku of Finland lives in Ophiog, the land of all evil. And, while some stories claim it resembles a giant walrus, others paint it with huge suckered tentacles, and dragon-like wings that grow when it's angry. Kind of reminds me of one of my exes. Perhaps the most famous eight-tentacled monster of the deep is the Kraken, from Norse mythology. It's one of the biggest animals ever imagined by humans, two and a half kilometers in circumference, with a mouth the size of a coastal bay. The Kraken hunted the seas between Norway, Greenland, and Iceland, either by attacking ships directly, or creating an inescapable whirlpool that would drag them underwater. The history of the Kraken goes back to an account written in 1180 by King Sverre of Norway, whilst recorded sightings of the beast go all the way back to a 13th century Norwegian text with a title that I'm going to spare from pronunciation-based execution. Yeah. Which includes a detailed description of a mammoth creature that could eat an entire ship's crew in one gulp was capable of swallowing whales whole. And to give you an idea of just how much the world has changed in the last few hundred years, even as recently as the 18th century, the kraken was getting some limelight in mankind's best natural history books. Famous Swedish naturalist Karl Linnaeus included the kraken as a species of cephalopod mollusk in the first edition of his groundbreaking Systema Natura the first book of modern biological classification, published in 1735. Up until that point, the description of the Kraken had varied a bit, sometimes even showing up as a colossal crab. But after Cunning Linnaeus published his book, pretty much everyone changed their definition to something along the lines of terrifying big octopus type thing. In later years, the author was embarrassed about having believed in sea monsters and removed the Kraken from future editions of Sistema Natura. A couple of decades later, Eric Pontopidan, Bishop of Bergen, wrote what he called the first attempt at a natural history of Norway, in which he shared the gospel truth about the Kraken, including the fact it was the size of multiple landmasses, submerged entire ships with the flick of a tentacle, and attracted particularly brave Norwegian fishermen, because it was usually surrounded by swarms of fish feeding on its large volumes of excrement. Importantly though, Pontopoda mentions a time in 1680 when a young kraken washed ashore and died near a town called Alstahog. This could be one of the first clues to the true identity. The mythical creature. The Kraken has featured in works of fiction like Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and Tennyson's poem called Wait for It The Kraken. It's also made its way into modern popular culture through films like The Pirates of the Caribbean. But to date, it seems nobody has taken advantage of the golden opportunity to give their depiction of the Kraken the name Phil. Phil McCracken? Anyone? No?
0: Even the best laid plans need an escape plan. Whatever your adventure, the all-new Taos is always game.
1: These days, no scientist of a shred of professional credibility claims the mythological kraken is a real beast. But we can assume the story originated somewhere in reality. The question is, what animal is the legend based on? One candidate is the giant Pacific octopus, the octopus species, and one that's found in the kind of cold water regions where sea monster stories and homemade vodka often originate. But even with an arm span of up to 8 meters and a reputation for snacking on small sharks, this animal doesn't quite make the gargantuan grade. Another potential beast is a giant octopus. A theoretical animal that has no official biological classification because there has never been any proof of its existence. The main piece of evidence that such a creature may roam the seas is claimed to be the St. Augustine monster a large, blood-like carcass of an unidentified creature found washed up on the US coast, near St. Augustine, Florida, in 1896. This is one of the first recorded findings of a globster, which is the ridiculous name people give to piles of decaying, unrecognizable organic matter that wash up on beaches around the world. Yes, that's actually a thing. Most globsters have proved to be bits of whale carcasses, But the St. Augustine monster has been more difficult to categorize. With its strange shape and texture, many over the years believed this block to be the remains of some gigantic form of octopus, including some scientists who conducted tests in the 70s and 80s. But in 1995, electron microscopy and biochemical analysis seemed to show, once and for all, that the flesh did not belong to a member of the octopus family, but was almost certainly the remains of a whale, probably the entire skin of one, so much for Octopus Giganteus. There is, however, a real monstrously large creature that would have frightened the salty, chaffing pants of ancient mariners, the giant sword, the is first known reference to this big chunk of calamari, Dates back it. to 4 B.C. Hmm? and Aristotle, he who spoke of a type of squid that was much larger. Than but even if one, Pliny the Elder also had a bit to say on the matter in the first century A.D., describing a massive squid with arms nine meters long and a body weighing 320 mm-hmm. kilograms. After that, things went pretty quiet, apart from the occasional sighting mm-hmm. of a man-eating sea monster, mm-hmm. until the 17th mm-hmm. century. When a carcass found in Iceland became the oldest certified record of a giant squid. It wasn't until 1856 no. that the Steenstrom first classified the creature. And even today, sightings to remain incredibly rare. With most of what we've learned having come from specimens washed up on beaches, particularly in New Zealand and Newfoundland, by the turn of the 21st century, we still did not have one photograph of a living giant squid. But that changed in 2002, when the first image of a live specimen was caught on camera at Goshiki Beach in Japan. In 2004, a massive 8-meter character was photographed, hunting at 900 meters below the surface, off Japan's Ogasawa Islands. The first moving images of a small specimen were captured in 2006, And, finally, in 2012, a film crew from the Discovery Channel and the Japanese network managed to lure a mature adult giant squid of about 10 metres in length and film it feeding for almost 25 minutes. Despite the excitement around these photos and film footage, we still know bugger all about these beasts. We know they live deep, but we're not exactly sure how deep. We don't really know how they find a mate, how they hunt, how long they live for, where they lay their eggs, or how many there are. We aren't even quite sure just how big they can get, but extrapolation based on what we know so far suggests the biggest could be a frankly absurd 25 meters long or more. Though, admittedly, most of that is just tentacle. Still, it isn't hard to imagine glimpses of these deep-sea monsters from the decks of ships. That big as a ruler. The but if that sounds like one scary squid, you'd better sit down as as because yeah. the giant squid is actually kind of a weed compared to its big brother, the imaginatively named colossal squid, only discovered in 1925. These titans of the abyss are admittedly a little shorter than their giant siblings, but they're much, much girthier. The chodes of the squid world, if you will. Whilst the heaviest giant squid are thought to come in at around 275 kilograms, colossal squid are as much as three times that weight, and they sport the largest eyes of any animal on the planet, at roughly the size of a large human head all the better to scare the crap out of you with. But whilst both Giant and Colossal Squid look pretty fearsome, they don't actually represent the top of the food chain, as both are preyed on by Moby Dick and his spermy mates. In fact, it's thought the environmental pressure from sperm whales was the evolutionary driver behind the development of those disturbing dinner plate eyes. You see, thousands of meters down where these guys live, Even giant eyes aren't actually all that much use. Next to no light makes it down that far. But the world's biggest peepers do help these monstrous squid detect extremely large shapes. For example, the kind of supersized silhouettes owned by sperm whales. This deep sea rivalry is often depicted as a kind of battle of the titans. You might have seen the impressive diorama of the two in a fight to death that hangs in the Museum of Natural History in New York. But, in reality, it's very much a one-sided fight. In fact, sperm whales eat these squid for breakfast, both literally and figuratively. A lot of what we know about both giant and colossal squid comes from remains, particularly their mouthpieces, known as beaks, found in the stomachs of sperm whales. By some estimates, colossal squid make up as much as 75% of the sperm whale's diet by mass. Still, the squid are known to put up a fight on the way down, because plenty of sperm whales have been found covered in sucker marks from both giant and colossal squid. Colossal squid are also candidates to be the inspiration for the Kraken, but the giant squid is probably a better fit, as colossal squid prefer to congregate around the Antarctic, And by congregate, I mean socially distant with miles of the ocean between them. To be honest, we don't know of that, no evidence of them in their natural habitats, And none of them use Instagram. So, whilst there may not be any real sea monsters left in our 21st century oceans, for my money, some of the regular old animals down there are almost as good. Thanks for watching.
0: Best laid plans need an escape plan. You ready, Whatever your adventure, the all-new Taos is always game. Folks up.
1: Hey, forty-two here. Okay, now I know what you're thinking. It's obvious what the most terrifying creature in the water is. It's the great white shark. Everyone knows that. But things aren't quite that clear-cut. As we're about to find out. In 1963, Clinton Haynes was scuba diving in the deep and ancient Nelson Lakes, New Zealand, in search of a lost propeller. He descended 30 meters into the inky blackness, searching by torchlight for any sign of his prize. A glint of reflected light from metal, perhaps, or an unusual shape on the lake bed. What he found instead was something much much worse. A large dark shape uncoiled from the shadows and began to move rapidly towards him. Haynes drew his knife as four more shapes appeared out of the darkness, making a beeline straight for him. He had no idea what the creatures were, but he knew instinctively that he had just dropped several links down the food chain. In a breathless flurry of bubbles, he dropped his torch and fled for the surface where his wife was waiting for him in their dinghy. As he raced upwards, one of the black shapes seized his flipper in its jaws. Glancing down, Haynes caught a glimpse of a gigantic snake-like creature about two meters long thrashing below. Horrified, he struggled with all his might to escape its clutches, knowing at any moment the animal's nightmarish pals would reach him. Helping the his wife to help. Seeing her husband grappling with a coiling monstrosity, she reacted instantly, lunged forward, and with adrenaline filled superhuman strength, hauled him out of the water. The creature fled back beneath the waves, and having risen from the depths too quickly, Haynes passed out from decompression sickness. But he was alive and safe. But just what manner of creature had haunted him? These were no snakes, neither were they a manifestation of the Tanifa from Maori mythology, set to eat men whole and carry their wives into the depths. It was a group of long, thin eel, one of the largest eel species in the world. Looking like the product of an ill-advised night of passion between a snake and a slug, Long, thin eels are powerful swimmers that would be more than capable of drowning a fully-grown man. Haynes had a very lucky escape. These eels are so badass that they only breed once, lest they take over the world. Just before they shuffle off this mortal coil, they make a final journey. Thousands of kilometers from New Zealand to Tonga, here. The female lays up to 20 million eggs, which, once fertilized, hatch into alien-like transparent larvae called leptocephalus. Over the next 15 months, these larvae drift on ocean currents back to New Zealand, where they slowly transform into transparent glass eels, and finally, long-fin eels. Now, the first image that comes to mind when I talk about terrors of the deep, is probably the looming silhouette of a great white shark. But look, stop getting ahead of yourself. There are plenty of other foul beasties out there, just as deserving of the accolade, scary as scariest monster from the deep. And some of the sneakiest have even managed to disguise themselves as our friends. Killer whales, the aptly named wolves of the sea, are typically considered to be friendly to humans, probably because those Bizarre SeaWorld types love nothing more than riding around on their backs and launching into the air off their noses. But in reality, these animals are frankly, lethal. Killer whales are in fact, not really whales at all, but are instead the largest member of the dolphin family. Known for their incredible intelligence, unparalleled hunting ability, and insatiable penchant for sadomasochism. Okay, so we don't exactly have a source on that last one, but come on, they're basically just big dolphins in gimp Killer whales, or orcas, as they're also known, named for orcas, the Roman god of death and the underworld, naturally, are well known for toying with their prey, giving whatever hapless creature happens to be on the menu just enough of a head start to believe it has a chance at life before casually tearing it to shreds and gulping down the bones. They've even been known to use half-dead prey as a makeshift ball in the world's most odious game of water polo, propelling half-dead seals some 20 meters into the air, just for the hell of it. They hunt pretty much anything that's stupid enough to get in their way. Enormous man-eating leopard seals? No problem. Spawn of Satan, great white sharks, easy peasy, entire pods of humpback whales, yeah, I'll eat the kids first. The name Killer Whale is actually a shortened form of Killer of Whales, because that's exactly what they do. They swim around in formation, slaughtering sperm, humpback, grey, fin, and any other whales they come across. They even eat other dolphins, because what better way of remaining the most feared member of the dolphin family than by indiscriminately slaughtering the competition. In short, they have what you might call a resume of terror. They can grow to be eight meters long and weigh in at five and up.
0: Even the best laid plans need an escape plan. Whatever your adventure, The all-new terrace is always in your room. So
1: Hey, 42 here. Take a seat. Make yourself comfortable. Breathe in the sandalwood incense. I'm about to do a psychic reading of your personality. I'm getting the sense that you place a lot of value on being liked and admired. At times you can be excessively critical of yourself. You pride yourself on being an independent thinker, and you rarely accept things without satisfactory proof. That'll be £200, please! Feel free to grab a handmade potion on your way out. Oh, and if you could just leave a review on TripAdvisor, I'd really appreciate it. Even if you're not the type of person likely to visit a psychic, you probably saw at least something of yourself in one of those questions. That's because they're Barnum Statements, declarations that appear to be unique insights into someone's character when, really, they could apply to pretty much anyone. The Barnum Effect, also known as the Fora Effect, for the reason your Auntie Madge insists on reading out your horoscope every Friday, is a tried and tested technique used by unscrupulous mystics. It'll convince you they can see into your soul, reveal the path before you, and that you don't really need all that money in your wallet. Unsurprisingly, the most... This video is kindly sponsored by Fabulous, the number one self-care app to help you build better habits and achieve your goals. Hey, 42 here. If you're fond of reading books about the sea, you might have read the one about a sperm whale called Moby Dick, Who's known to eat semen. And no giggling to yourself just because I said sperm and dick and semen in the same sentence. We're all mature adults here. I giz can't handle infantile humour. Herman Melville's legendary novel about the great white whale was published in 1851, which doesn't seem like a long time ago. But in maritime terms, it was another era altogether. An age when the sea was full of monsters. Unlike today, when the worst you might expect on a ship, is bad sunburn and a shortage of rum, the sailors of yesteryear had proper things to worry about. On the 6th of August 1848, around the time Melville was writing about giant spunk whales, Captain McQuarrie of the the HMS Daedalus, along with several of his officers and crew, Spotted a massive it. serpent in the ocean oh, beside wow. their ship as they sailed from the Cape of Good Hope to Saint Helena. Reports from the captain and seven of his colleagues estimated the serpent was out. around 20 meters long, with at least a meter of its giant snake-like it was, head traveling above I think the water. Less than a year later, a similar report was published in the Illustrated details of a serpent that By matched the same description. Dick? You get some you? If you want to avoid those deep-sea beasties, laddie, you best be in good shape. Some people never ...good healthy daily routine. So, if you're anything like me, you've probably been finding it tough spending a little longer cooped up indoors the past year than you'd ideally like to be. I, for one, have definitely developed some bad habits, like substituting my daily intake of water for something somewhat higher in proof and it's best we leave it there. And I've had way too many late nights. I've taken the decision to try to be healthier, and take care of myself, so my body takes care of me in the future. So, I'm using Fabulous to add structure to my day, and start to factor in time to head out for a walk, or to read a few pages of that book that I started six months ago. And, most importantly, start to eat and drink healthier. I can tell you I'm drinking significantly more water every day since using Fabulous. It works. Fabulous makes it easy for anyone to develop and stick to healthy habits, thanks to science-backed daily routines. As a result, you'll feel healthier, fulfilled, and more productive. I know I do. Fabulous is different from other self-improvement apps. Firstly, it allows you to go at your own pace. Unlike other self-development apps, Fabulous is gentler, more rewarding, more fun, and has a more supportive approach, meaning you don't have to beat yourself up if you don't hit one of your daily tasks. It's also 100% personalized, tailored to your own needs. Fabulous provides schedules, tasks, and reminders specific to you. It's like having a personal life coach in your pocket. I know that Fabulous has been a positive impact on my routine and general well-being, and it could do the very same for you. You can find out more about the Fabulous app by clicking on the link in the description below. You'll also receive a free week's trial and up to 25% off a Fabulous subscription. So join me and kickstart your journey today. To you and I, these stories may seem ridiculous. But at that point in history, the natural sciences were still young. Charles Darwin wouldn't publish on the origin of species for another 10 years or so, and most people had little rational understanding of nature and biology. It was normal for even the more educated seagoing men, like the captain and officers, to believe in sea monsters. In fact, sailors from all cultures were raised on a diet of superstition and tales of terrifying beasts of the ocean. Then again, sea monster was basically just a catch-all phrase which you could roughly take to mean big moving thing in the water we don't recognize. The sea serpent spotted by Captain McQuarrie and the men of the Devilus, for example, is likely to have been a sigh there's nothing monstrous or mystical about these beasts, but they're known to be skin feeding specialists, meaning often all you see of them is the upper jaw poking out above the water. And, hey, you have to admit, it does look a bit weird. Another species thought to have been responsible for a lot of sea serpent stories is the giant oarfish, also rather quaintly known as the king of herrings. These freaky creatures can grow to be 11 metres long, making them the longest bony fish on the planet. And their brightly coloured crests give them a distinctly sea serpenty vibe. Again, today we know they're just regular old fish. But back before they were known to science, it's no surprise people thought they were sea monsters. It's also worth remembering we haven't exactly completed the Marine poke even today. Several thousand new animals are discovered every single year. And the 250,000 or so species we've put a name to so far is thought to be only around 10% of the true number. And it isn't just the small stuff we're yet to collect. We discovered a new species of barley whale, not so different from the one that played a prank on the crew of the Daedalus just this year in the Gulf of Mexico. Nowadays, we have a...
2: Shit could be of about. Shit hurt. <laughs> it fucking hurt. What? The, the blisters? Because I started rubbing it. boy shot and killed tonight at Park Manor on the south side. He was sitting in a car on the 7100 block of South Indiana Avenue, when someone approached him and opened fire. That teen was hit in the head, sent to the University of Chicago Hospital where he died. No one's in custody tonight. I'm going to show you live proof of how you can start raking in $1,000 a day. Do the math. $1,000 a day means $7,000 a week, $30,000 a month, and $365,000 a year. Look, if it's millions you're after, then get off this page right now, because it would be an outright lie if I promised to make you a million dollars this year. But if making $365,000 a year is not enough for you, then pay very close attention, because I'm going to show you something you've never seen before. I promise, it won't take more than two minutes of your time, and you won't be disappointed. This is something nobody has dared to do before, and I'm only going to show you this once. So if you try to click back to this video later, your link will be expired, and you'll never hear from me again. But before I show you this live demo, I want to make one thing absolutely clear. There is absolutely nothing for sale here. That's right. I'm going to show you exactly how you can start living the 1% lifestyle for free right here on this page. No, an add to cart button isn't magically going to appear at the end of this video. So put your wallet away because I won't need your credit card, your debit card, or your PayPal. Do I have your attention now? Good. What if I told you that me and a partner at Goldman Sachs cracked the code to profiting from the global financial crisis and that this breakthrough algorithm has made our community over 100 million. You can investigates. We- keep piling up. WGN investigator for Martin picks fix up the story. Fraud has been a major issue for the Department of Employment Security. WGN investigators have been asking officials for a dollar amount in losses for about a year now. The Department of Labor finally has a number. We'll get to that. But it may not give us the entire picture. Hackers get more brazen. And spent nearly six years as a suburban school bus driver right up until 2020. And of course, when the pandemic started, um, schools so were shut down immediately. Out of work and with bills coming due, she filed a claim with the Illinois Department of Employment Security.